As you can tell, uh, I'm wearing a t-shirt this morning. Um, I'm always looking for an excuse to wear a t-shirt, but uh, I'm wearing this because uh, we had our first annual First Baptist Church father-son camp out last night in the exotic Grandview campgrounds behind the church. Uh, and so uh, we had a great time. Uh, Amy put everything together, did an awesome job, had a good group of guys, good group of kids. Uh, it was a lot of fun, uh, and we really enjoyed it. Uh, and so if you see somebody beside you in one of these shirts and you smell something, it is that person. Um, they are the ones that smell. Uh, so go ahead and, and get ready for that. If you smell the nice aroma of mesquite or something in the air, or something could be a broad array of things, but uh, you know that's what's going on. So it's good to be here with you this morning uh, after a, a little bit of sleep last night, uh, and I'm excited to dive into God's Word. We're going to be in First Peter this morning, chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. If you brought your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and turn there. If not, that scripture will be on the screen behind me when we get to that point. So I'm always looking for the latest and greatest productivity app for my iPhone. I don't know if anybody else out there likes a good productivity app or not. Um, maybe you do, maybe you don't, maybe it's not an app, maybe it's something that you use in your workplace to help you be more productive, but I'm always looking for some kind of calendar or task management kind of system that helps me stay up to date. And what happens is I usually find one, and the latest one that I found is a, is a Moleskine time page app. It's a good one. Uh, it helps me arrange what I want to do, when I want to do it, helps me calendar throughout the week. And it's been really good for the last couple of months, but I'm starting to use it less and less. And social scientists tell us that that's, that's, there's a, a, something going on there, a phenomenon, if you will, called the novelty effect. And this, uh, this applies especially to types of productivity in different workplaces, where someone will find something that helps them be more productive, and there will be a period of time after they find that new thing, that novel thing, in which productivity actually raises but eventually the novelty of that app or that whatever tool it is that you're using, that novelty will eventually wear off and production will, come, will go back to normal, if not a little lower sometimes. And so that's the novelty effect, that something is new, it's awesome, that's what novelty means, the state of being new, original, or unusual. But eventually all things that are novel at some point cease to be novel. The novelty wears off. Now on the flip side, my phone is something that is while novel in a way, since the iPhone's been in existence for a little bit over 10 years now, it, it's still something that is new to me every day, even though it's old to me. And, and this is part of the genius behind the people who produce smartphones today, is that they are constantly updating. I think iOS 11 iPhone users out there, I don't know if anybody's updated to that or not, but that's the latest, greatest update that's out there that makes your phone seem a little different, puts things in different places where you get frustrated uh, because you can't find them. But at the same time, you're probably not going to complain in that situation that your phone feels old or stale because it's always updating. It's learning about you. It's learning about your preferences. It is gauging itself around how you do things. It, it begins to, if, you're, if you do the predictive text like you're texting, it figures out what words you consistently use and gives you those as suggestions. If you search for things on Safari or on Google or in any other kind of search engine, it learns who you are and it begins to discover what you want to look for. Amazon does the same thing. It learns who we are and so it's constantly updating, constantly evolving to match us and who we are and that is not necessarily novel, even though that's a new idea, that's more along the sense of what I want to talk about this morning, and that is intimacy, of being able to develop a long-term relationship that doesn't seem boring or old or stale, a long-term intimate relationship that is actually novel in some ways. You see, relational novelty, when we talk about relationships, is overrated. 
Because everybody's always looking for something new and something fresh and something exciting. And especially in relationships. We can be in a relationship in which we've been for a long time. Things begin to seem stale. And I mean this friendship to romantic relationship and anything in between. And at some point we begin to think, ah, this is old. This is boring. I need something new. I need something fresh. I've fallen out of love, so I need to fall back in love. That is that novelty effect going on. And that is overrated in our society. Relational intimacy, on the other hand, is underrated. That idea of working, like we talked about last week, to develop a long-term relationship, one that can, can, can take the bumps and bruises and the chaos of life and become stronger in the long run. One that doesn't grow stale with age, but grows better with age. That is underrated in our society because it's harder to accomplish. Novelty is overrated. Intimacy is underrated. And both of them are necessary. You see, relational intimacy means consistently finding novel ways to communicate an old love. Finding new and fresh ways to communicate a passion that has been in your heart and in your mind for sometimes decades. That's what intimacy looks like. A love that is new, that is fresh every morning. And so in thinking along those lines and continuing along in our relationship series, we are going to look at 1 Peter, again, chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, as Peter begins to close his first letter and he begins to say these words about love. Again, 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 8. Above all, keep on loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Above all, Peter says, as if this is the prime directive, the main teaching, above all, love each other earnestly. The Greek word behind earnestly there, it means something that is stretched out. And so it is taking a passionate love, a love that all of us love to fall in love with, and stretching that out over time so that it becomes consistent and long-lasting. You see, he tells to keep on loving one another, as if it is a continual action, because that's what relational intimacy is. Relational intimacy requires moment-by-moment decisions to choose to love the other person. It's not just a single I do. It's not just a single time that you look at your best friend in the eye and tell them, hey, buddy, I got your back. It's not just a single time that you cover for someone at work in your workplace without telling the boss that they missed missed an assignment. It's not just a single decision to act on someone's behalf. It is a continual, constant, daily, sometimes hourly, if not minutely, when you're in the midst of chaos, decision to choose to love the one with whom you're in a relationship. That's what intimacy looks like, a continual moment-by-moment decision. Maintaining intimacy like this is both the hardest and the most satisfying element of any relationship. This is one of the reasons why relationships fall apart, because maintaining intimacy is difficult. Now, you're looking at me with blank faces, maybe because you have intimacy figured out. Uh, But why is it hard to maintain intimacy? Here's why it's hard to maintain intimacy. Because maintaining intimacy with a friend or a spouse or a coworker or anybody else that you work alongside of, a deep, long-lasting relationship, means that you are in a relationship with someone who knows your game, who knows all of your tricks, 
who knows how to counter-argue all of your arguments because they've heard them a thousand times before, right? Can I get a nod of identification with anybody? It's somebody who knows your bad habits, who knows the promises that you failed to keep, who knows the way that you do things when you're trying to be, uh, you know, kind of, kind of lying, or, or bending the truth. They know the way that you kind of do that and try to skirt around issues. And when you're in a relationship with someone like that who knows your game and knows how you operate, it can sometimes be hard to build that long-lasting intimacy. Because sometimes familiarity does breed contempt as the cliche goes. But if we do the work, if we go through those tough times, intimacy, relational intimacy, long-lasting, decade-long love or friendship is something that is satisfying beyond any other human relationship interaction that any of us can have. Peter goes on to describe what this kind of love looks like. He says, love covers a multitude of sins. Wayne Grudem, a New Testament theologian, puts it this way, and I'm going to quote him because I think he says it perfectly. Where love abounds in a fellowship of Christians, many small offenses, and even some large ones, are readily overlooked and forgotten. But where love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion. Every action is liable to misunderstanding, and conflicts abound to Satan's perverse delight. You ever been there? When love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion. Every action is liable to misunderstanding. You've been in those relationships, have you not? All of us have, where everything is so fragile. When you're walking on such thin ice that one word can throw everything into a tailspin. Your spouse leaves a dirty dish sitting on the coffee table overnight, even though you've asked him or her not to do that several times. I'm not going to make that gender specific because I know that it can just depend on who's the cleanest, uh, cleanest, cleanest, is that a word? Who is the, the, the most loving of clean things? Whatever you want to call it. Uh, spouse in the relationship might see that and get frustrated by that. If they're in a loving relationship or things are going awesome, you might get bothered, but you're probably going to forget it and move on. But if it's something that's happened over and over and over again, or maybe you're in the midst of conflict, it will be something that might just possibly ignite a firestorm. Or how about your best friend who has that laugh? You know that laugh that I'm talking about? that you could hear it in a room full of thousands of people and you can pick that person out. Does anybody have a friend like that? Or are you a laugher like that? Where it just, it has this, this certain tone or pitch that gives it away wherever you are. You can hear it a mile away and you can know that's so-and-so. When you first became friends with that person, it made you laugh, right? It made you giggle at that person. But if you get into conflict with that person, that laugh becomes like nails on a chalkboard, doesn't it? It becomes something that annoys you, something that that moves inside you to the point that you just want to get away. Something small becomes something big. Those of you who have teenage children, your teenage child arrives home three minutes after curfew. Maybe it's the first time, but if things are going on, In your relationship in such a way that everything is healthy, you know that that child respects you, you know that it was just a mistake, maybe there is some sort of discipline, but you quickly heal and you move on. But if things are at the point where they aren't healthy, where you're worried that the child doesn't respect you, that it isn't a loving relationship, those three minutes can spell doom for that child's future as far as his social life goes. Can I get an amen from anybody? Or your mom or your dad is too busy to talk to you when you have something important to tell them. By too busy, I mean they're looking at 
Facebook on their phone or they're watching their favorite Netflix show. In the moment, if you have a loving relationship, that can be frustrating, but it's something that you can work past. But if you don't have a loving relationship, it's just another time that your mom or your dad ignore you and you just want to move on and feel, and feel like you're completely disconnected from them. You see, if I trust that you love me unconditionally, I can forgive your mistakes with ease. If I trust, like if I know that I know that I know that, I can, that you love me unconditionally, without fail, if I can take that to the bank, when you mess up, I can forgive that because I know that it is a hiccup. I know that it is something we will get past and can move on from. But when I doubt that you love me unconditionally, when that trust is on shaky ground, that leaves me with an uneasy feeling and that can lead to even a small offense becoming a big deal. But that is what intimacy looks like. When you love unconditionally, you can forgive mistakes with ease. But what about when they're not easy? I gave you some pretty simple examples. What about some more difficult ones? Would your relationship in all these different areas survive these kinds of mistakes? Suppose you find out that your spouse has a hidden battle with an addiction, pornography, alcohol, gambling, spending, whatever you want to, whatever addiction you want to, you want to focus on, whatever you see in the world around you. Suppose they come to you confessing that addiction. That's a big deal. That's not a small thing. Is your relationship founded on love strongly enough that it can survive that? Because love covers a multitude of offenses. Your best friend with whom you share a personal and deeply embarrassing secret with goes and tells somebody else, someone you specifically asked her or him not to tell. Can that friendship survive that kind of mistake? Your teenage child doesn't just come home a few minutes late. They get brought home by the police with a minor in possession ticket. Can that relationship survive something as serious as that? Your mom and dad, they're not just too busy not paying attention to you. Maybe they miss a huge event like a prom or a graduation or the biggest football game of your life because they were too busy staying late for work. What happens then? Is your relationship founded on love deep enough and big enough that it can cover that kind of offense? Because the kind of love that breeds intimacy covers a multitude of offenses. It's also something that shows hospitality. As Peter goes on to say, <clears throat> he says, show hospitality without grumbling. Now, hospitality is the friendly and generous reception of guests. That's the dictionary definition of it. But I like this one better. It's by a dude named Donald Coggan. And he says it this way. True Christian hospitality is making people feel at home when you wish they were at home. You catch that? Making people feel at home when you wish they were at home. Hospitality without grumbling. Peter felt it necessary to add that without grumbling, probably because when anyone extends themselves in an act of hospitality or kindness, what does that mean? It means you are putting yourself out there to the point that you could be taken advantage of, that somebody can take that hospitality and maybe use it against you, that someone can, can take the hospitality for you to come over and hang out for a few minutes and watch the game, and then at midnight they're still there and they've eaten every single snack in your fridge. That somebody can take your gesture of kindness and take more than you ever meant to give. But Peter says to love hospitably, to show hospitality without grumbling, because it's not really hospitality if it comes with grumbling. 
It's not really hospitality if you said, sure, man, help yourself. Gosh, he sure is eating a bunch. It's not hospitality if you're holding it against the person while you're giving it to them. That's not the kind of love that Peter is talking about. That's not the kind of love that breeds intimacy, that breeds a long-lasting familial relationship. You might be taken advantage of, but you've already counted that cost, as we talked about last week, and decided that you were up for it. As a Christian, it's impossible to be hospitable while grumbling. Intimacy is found within relationships in which all parties are consistently kind to one another. That word consistently, I don't mean by that all the time. I just mean on a regular basis, consistently showing kindness to one another. Kindness. What a novel idea in 2017, right? What a fresh take. Kindness. Doing for others as you would have them do for you. One of the simplest commands to repeat and spew forth and parrot back to you. One of the deeply, one of the deepest and most difficult commands to live consistently. Yet one that sums up the law according to Jesus. To do to others as you would have them do for you. To think of the other person before you act. This kind of action, this kindness, this hospitality is what breeds intimacy. And Peter spells it out. He says, serve one another with gifts that God has given you. Serve. Be a servant of one another. Now, serve, okay, that's, that's no big deal, right? But when you really spell that out, to make yourself a servant to those that you love, what does that look like in our world today? Think about a servant. And, and maybe in our culture and who we are in, in this place in the world we might think of someone who is a wait staff. Maybe you've been there, you've done that, you've served people, you've waited on people. You know what it's like to make yourself a servant of someone else. That idea, that metaphor of waiting on someone. Are you willing to wait on, to care for the people that you love? To wait on your spouse, to wait on your friend, your child, or your parent? using the particular set of gifts that God has given you to serve them, to make yourself a servant to the people in whom you are, with whom you are in relationship. You see, Cheryl and I share a, a gift. We have both have a sense of humor. And it's easy for us to joke around, to pick at each other sometimes, to make each other laugh. If you've been around us, you know that's the case. You know that's something we both enjoy that breeds intimacy between us. Long-lasting relationships, I think, have to be founded on some sort of sense of humor. If not, you're just going to stare around and be mad at each other or be super serious all the time. And nobody wants that because I don't want that. Does anybody want that? Does anybody want a humorless relationship? You got to have some humor in the midst of it. Can I get an amen? Or is everybody on the same page with me here this morning? Humor is necessary in that way. So, so we share that gift. That's easy to do that, to have that kind of humor-filled relationship. But God also gave me muscles and a brain, too. At least I think so. God gave me muscles and a brain. Not just to do that which is easy and which comes comfortable, but to do that which is sometimes uncomfortable that he gifted me to do. To do things like see that there's a need, smell that there's a need, meaning a diaper that needs to be changed, and get up and meet that need. <laughs> I told you about the sense of humor, right? <laughs> She'll say, practice what you preach later today. I guarantee you all that one. <laughs> so, anyway, like I was saying, to see that need and meet the need. 
This is what God has called me to do, to recognize that I have gifts and abilities, maybe that I sometimes don't want to do, but that God has placed within me so that I can use them to be a gift to my wife. Hey, that's better, right? To be a gift to her, everything she was looking for. That's what we are gifted for, is to be a gift for those with whom we are in relationship. God didn't give us those things so that we could keep them. God wants you to be a regifter, to take that which he has given you and to share it with other people, to be kind in that way, to use those gifts that God has given you. Once again, the way we love others says something about the way God loves us. God has gifted you so that you can gift others. And this is where the novelty comes back in, as we've been talking about intimacy. Intimacy is the goal. Novelty is one of the means. Our overall goal is to build a lifelong, lasting, deep, familiar relationship that never grows old and never goes stale. And novelty is one of the ways to get there, to find new ways to love each other. Again, relational intimacy means consistently finding novel ways to communicate an old love. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but people change a little bit over time. People develop different interests, they develop different habits, their mood, their personality even sometimes changes. If you want to have an intimate relationship with your spouse, your children, your parent, your siblings, or your friends, you will become a student of that person. You will learn their likes and dislikes. You will learn what makes them happy and what brings them down. You will learn their tastes. You will learn the ways that they are loved by you. And as you study them deeply every day, every moment, trying to learn more about them, you will find new ways to love them. It is the same with our relationship with God. I have known him longer than I have known my wife. But every day I open his word and read from it, I find out something new about him. I learned something new about the way he loves me. I learned something new about the way he wants me to show love back to him. May we apply that same kind of idea in the way that we love each other. Every day, learning something new about the people in our lives and finding new ways to love them. And so that means couples in the room, married couples. Don't stop wooing each other. Don't stop dating each other. Don't stop pursuing one another. Yes, the main fight is over when you put the ring on it, but you got to keep fighting long after that if you want the kind of relationship that is going to be intimate and long-lasting and fulfilling, the kind of relationship that all of us want. So keep pursuing one another. Don't stop. It's worth it. It will make a difference in your life, in your kids' lives, in your grandkids' lives if you become the couple that is always about pursuing one another another novel every moment but intimate because it's an old love that you're going to communicate in a new way today because you love your spouse that much parents find new ways to serve your kids take your kid to work with you one day i don't know what it is about kids being in an office that you're in every day that you grow bored with but when they're there and they see that part of your life that you never get to see that they never get to see they think it's the most awesome thing in the world find new ways and new things to do with your children Find new ways to love your parents. Pamper your mom. Go fishing with your dad. Maybe that's old for you, so maybe find something different to do. Go to Top Golf. Go do something with the people that you love and spend time with them and love them in a new way. Write your friend or your coworker an actual handwritten letter of appreciation telling them how much they mean to you. Find new ways to communicate an old love. And so this morning, my challenge for you is to be novel and build intimacy. It's sad that it's novel in our culture, but it is. 
Intimacy is actually a novel thing. Long-lasting relationships are not what is popular or cool. All you got to do is watch a Hollywood movie. It usually stops at the point where they first fall in love, right? That's usually the end of most Hollywood stories, isn't it? This is how most of them go. And if you're a fan of these kind of movies, I'll pray for you. But this is how most of them go. So they start, this couple finds each other, there's this infatuation and attraction, you know, they see each other across a crowded room, or, or some kind of serendipitous thing happens where they run into each other by chance, they fall madly in love with one another, the guy can't stop thinking about the girl, and vice versa, and then something happens, right? Like there's another person in there, there's a love triangle, that person has to be removed, you know, that person has to be gotten rid of, or there's, there's some sort of set of circumstances and chaos and problem, conflict that needs to be taken care of, and it's usually something that can be taken care of in about an hour and a half, right, in order to get things moving along. And so this conflict comes to a point, you know, everything looks like it's going to go south, and then suddenly, surprise, they fall in love with each other, they end up with one another. You never saw that coming. I know, that's why you love those movies. And so that, that happens, they fall in love with one another, and then fade to black. And that's the end of the story, Right? Because, well, of course, this is Hollywood. Of course they're going to stay together forever. You know, I know that actor and that actress. They're really faithful people. They're going to stay together forever and ever and ever. You don't get to see what happens after the fade to black. That's where intimacy is built. And that, look, that love story is not being told. Christians, we can tell that love story. And the way that we love our spouses, our children, our friends, our coworkers, and our fellow church members. We can tell the love story that gets hurt badly and forgives anyway. We can tell the love story that looks into someone's eyes that you've known 60 years and says, you know what? I learned something new about you today. I love you more than I did yesterday. I learned something new about you today, and it bothered me a little bit, but I forgave you anyway, and I got over it because we are built on a foundation of intimate love. Let's tell that story. It's better than any Hollywood story. It's better than any other story that's ever been written because it is a continuation of the one true love story that can actually change our eternal lives, and that is the story of Jesus Christ who loved us enough to come down and get us. May we find novel ways to communicate that age-old love to the people in our lives, and if we do that, intimacy will happen. May you build intimacy in your relationships. May you take the time and effort to go out and to do that, to make an old love feel new every day. Appreciate the familiarity of an old, trustworthy love so much that just like the love of our Father, you find that those mercies, those love are made new every morning. And you celebrate them as if they were brand new when they are decades old. I know that's the kind of love you want. It takes work. It takes effort. And it takes a sense of novelty to bring that kind of intimacy. This morning, as we move into our time of invitation, I encourage you to allow God to speak to you about your relationships. I I encourage you to allow God to lay on your heart something novel that you might do for those that you love the most. A new way that you might love your spouse, your kids, siblings, friends, parents, so on and so forth. Let God speak to you in this moment. If you need to pray down here at the altar, you can certainly do that. You can pray where you're at. I'm here to pray with you for this or anything else, both now and after the service. But let's stand together. I'm going to pray. The band is going to lead us in a song of invitation, and then you move in whatever way God is calling. Father, once again, we thank you for your son, Jesus. God, we thank you for the love that your word tells us is made fresh every morning. 
that you are the God who makes all things new. God, may you give us that same sense of novelty so that we may find new ways, new ways to love and new ways to express love to those that we hold closest. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.